Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Well, you're in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Um, and I want to speak a little bit tonight on Pharaoh's hard heart. Pharaoh's hard heart. Um, there's a quick rundown in scriptures. Was it God that hardened Pharaoh's heart? Or was it Pharaoh that hardened Pharaoh's heart? That's really a question that could be seen because both expressions are used. In fact, depending on your view of soteriology, in fact, whatever your view is of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, will ultimately determine how you answer that. If you indeed view that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, the likely outcome of that soteriology is that you believe, in fact, that God chooses, predetermines, who will come to the saving knowledge and who will not. For if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, insomuch that Pharaoh had no choice to receive a marvelous grace, or no choice to repent, the optimal word there by some would be a, a great depravity or inability. If that's the case, then today in salvation, VBS, uh, core ministries, canvassing, door knock, whatever you want to call it, are kind of foolish. Because after all, God's already predetermined who's going to come to the saving knowledge of Christ and who is not. And so for you and I, though we don't know, there's less of a motive to go out and knock because there's no human involvement. If on the other hand, you believe that the greater role of this hardening of the heart was Pharaoh's own personal choice, meaning that he had a choice to make in regards to these plagues at God, that he could have repented, that he should have repented, then you're looking at a gospel for whosoever will may come. So the scripture uses it a number of times. Let me give you just a quick rundown. Three times, and this is Exodus 4.21, is the first of these, I believe, and you can flip over there and look. Exodus 4.21, The Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. So three times, Jehovah, God, declares that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Here in Exodus chapter 4, chapter 7, and then chapter 14 and verse 4. Six times, the scriptures announce that Jehovah actually hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus chapter 9, a couple of times in chapter 10, 11, and then in chapter 14. And then, on the other hand, you have three times where the Scripture reminds us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And those are all found in chapter 8 and chapter 9. So which is it? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Or did Pharaoh harden God's heart? Let me show you one other passage. You're there in Romans. Look in Romans chapter 9. I perhaps will conclude with this passage as well. But just from emphasis, Romans chapter 9... And Thursday night, last week, week before last, we were in Romans chapter 8. So this Thursday night, this Thursday and next Thursday night, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9. So look, if you will, in Romans chapter 9. I, I want you to consider a couple of verses here. Um, look, if you will, in verse number 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that sheweth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, this is Exodus chapter 9, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might shew my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he, will he harden? It's a good question, isn't it? Romans chapter 9, and those that hold to specifically the hyper-Calvinist view, Romans chapter 9, they use the passage in relationship to Pharaoh that Pharaoh really never had a chance. Uh, and it almost really, if you consider it, could look unjust from their perspective 
Because after all, if God's already stacked the deck, what does it matter? I mean, enforced to it, though perfect and a holy and just God, if God's already called out those that may become believers, that have that uh, ability that God has imparted to them, and I'm not saying that's biblical, I'm just giving their perspective for a moment, that in fact that they will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and then for the balance of the world, they have been written off, what would be your response to that God? I think my heart would be hardened too. If I knew that it was all planned out against me. Look at Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Now this is before you get into the confusion of the matter of who hardened who. But look at Exodus chapter 3, a passage we read just a moment ago. And note verse 19. This is the Lord responding to Moses. He says, and I am sure. How is God sure? How is He sure? What is the consideration? What does it mean to be sure? There are a few things that I'm unsure of in life. You know, I'm I'm unsure when I think that I'm unsure, I should say, when my last day is going to be on earth. I don't know when that's going to be. I like to think I still have about 80 years. But the reality is, my last day could come tonight. I got an email this week, pray for a uh, missionary down to Mexico. Um, He and his family were in a car accident. Very critical condition. The, The Reardons, I think, was their name. It's a shock to think of. I'm not sure when I'm going to die. We think of being sure. A host of things I'm unsure of. I'm unsure what tomorrow's trouble is going to be. And sometimes we get in our mindset that we've got terrible things on tomorrow we've got to deal with. Oh, it's going to be terrible, this fight, this difficult. But really, you have no idea what tomorrow holds. It might be such a travesty of a report that it causes you to think that all the hurdles that you had anticipated tomorrow seem as nothing at all. I'm unsure. In fact, there are really, from humanly speaking and human experience, only a few things that you can be sure of. You can be sure of the fact that save the imminent return of Jesus Christ to rapture his saints, you're going to die. You can be sure of that. You can be sure that the providence God that has hung the stars in the heaven will cause the sun to rise tomorrow in the eastern sky. You can be sure of that. You can be sure of some of the laws that God has instilled in nature like gravity. You can be sure of those. Biblically, we can have assurance in our Savior. I can be sure of my salvation. He that has begun a good work in me will continue it into the day of Jesus Christ. I can be sure that once I have received the blood atonement of Jesus Christ upon my sins, I am forever His and He is mine. I can be sure of that. I can be sure of a coming judgment. But there is a whole host of things from the perspective of humanity that I don't know that I could use the word sure of. But why is it that God in this passage would use the word sure? Somebody said it a moment ago. Because He knows all. And when you speak of him knowing it all, let me put it in this essence. He knows you individually. Yet that you individually also extends by way of human experience. He knows every human individually. He has to. If he doesn't, what makes him just that one day he will pass judgment upon someone that he doesn't know? A psalmist, in reflecting upon that, said he is, he knows the, the, the words that are yet in our mouth. That he is a discerner of the faults and the intents of the heart. So in reference back to our purpose, when the Lord's saying that he is sure of something, he is sure of it because he is the creator God. He knows the genetic makeup He knows the experience. He knows the mental constraints of every individual. 
But yet it goes beyond that. He knows the practical choices that individuals are perpetually making. But yet it goes beyond that. Since he's all-knowing and not constrained by time, he sees tomorrow as yesterday. See, he already knows long before you were formed in your mother's womb the choices you're going to make regarding salvation. Now, I put all that in parentheses so that I can draw this distinction. He said, I am sure beyond the reason and shadow of a doubt because I know what he's made of, Pharaoh. I know what choices he's made to this moment. And there were many of them as it pertained to Jehovah God. And I know ultimately what the end of it is. Did you note this, that the sovereign God over in chapter 4, we read verse 20 or 21 where he said he would harden his heart. But listen to the next verse, verse 22. Chapter 4 and verse 22. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my, first, is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Now let me ask you, was the death of the firstborn the first plague? Was it the second? Third? What was it? God had already conveyed to Moses that it would get to this point with Pharaoh. Not because God had called Pharaoh out to doom him from his mother's womb, as it were, but rather God was sure of the decisions he was making. God was sure of him because he knew his thoughts, he knew his trending direction, and he knew his rejection and impertinently stubborn heart. In fact, that's the exact idea that the word hardening means. It means to be obstinate. Obstinate. That was one of the characters, wasn't it, in Pilgrim's Progress? Obstinate. You know what another biblical word for obstinate is? Stiff neck. You want a picture image of stiff neck? It's the the herdsman that's plowing. He's got his range. And he's got an oxen. And that oxen is set on a path. And the herdsman set on a path. And as long as the path's the same, everything, to give you the Hebrew word, is hunky-dory. But what happens when said ox decides to go right, but the furrow being plowed is straight ahead? What is the good herdsman going to do? going to tug. Now how much should he have to tug on those reins to get that beast to realign? You know, equestrians, cowboys, they talk about rain-trained ponies that, that can ride, you can ride them almost effortlessly. You just lay the reins on one side and that thing just moves with you. That, that's not obstinate. But, but the idea of one that is obstinate, Hardened heart, stiff neck, it means they will not course correct regardless of how long and how hard you try to counter correct the course they're on. And that very analogy was used by God in reference to the children of Israel and Hezekiah. He said, I'm going to send you to a stiff neck group of people. What is it? They're not going to course correct. They are obstinate. That's the same thing he addresses Pharaoh as. Pharaoh could have been given 20 chances. He could have been given 100 chances. You know what the end of those would have always resulted in? Not going to turn. Proverbs says, He that hardeneth his neck shall soon be cut off. And do you remember the last phrase? And that without... No cure. That's a hardening. Long before Moses has ever come face to face in his inaugural meeting to Pharaoh, 
Pharaoh had already by experience and interaction with the God of heaven proven to be an unyielding, unsubmissive, unpliable, obstinate, stiff-necked rebel. And those stand in direct contradiction to the calling of God. So it's a great question here. Why? Why did it have to be that way? In fact, you might even ask a series of questions about that. Why did, why, how did Pharaoh get that way? Why did God send ten plagues? Why was God seemingly long-suffering to him? In fact, why didn't Pharaoh change? There's a whole host of questions that can come to mind. I want to give you a couple of answers here, I think, from just a study of scriptures regarding this. Why is it that Pharaoh hardened his heart? I think, number one, Pharaoh refused or failed or ignored to acknowledge God's plan. If you're writing or taking notes, after you get to God's plan, you can put parentheses and put this word, history. Pharaoh refused to acknowledge God's plan. And by the extension to the way we're looking at it, our perspective, it's history. This particular time, this Pharaoh, and we spoke last week on this, this is not the same Pharaoh as Joseph, and I doubt very unlikely, highly unlikely, that this is the same Pharaoh that knew Moses when he was a young man and adopted by the princess of Egypt. Not the same Pharaoh. These are perhaps, very likely, at least three different Pharaohs. The Pharaoh of chapter 1 and the great infanticide is likely not the same Pharaoh of chapter 4. But in any case, even if that's wrong, these Egyptians documented history. They documented interactions. They were well aware of the societies of peoples and great peoples and nations. I, I read this week, or actually I watched, but it was a, uh, a little archaeological clip that caught my attention. And it was a very interesting. They found a, a stella, uh, which is kind of like a, a, a granite monument that they document things in and and foreign languages, different languages use it, but this happened to be in hieroglyphics. And it talks about the expansion of Egypt later on, particularly in the judges' time, where they would invade into what they refer to as the Levant, what we call the land of Israel. And it talks about various kings that the Pharaoh, this is after the Exodus, had defeated. And in the hieroglyphics, to each one of these people, it refers to them and it has a little crown. And it denoted that these were all city-states and kings. But then when it comes to the Hebrew or to the nation of Israel that is listed by name, it calls them a people. Because there was one distinguishing thing that they did not have that all of these other city-states have. Do you remember what it is? They didn't have a king. They were just a people. The Egyptians were well aware and had been for generations Yet this Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4 would not acknowledge God's revelation to all the heathens. This is not the first or second time that one of the Pharaohs of Egypt had interacted with God's people. That's an important thing to consider. Let me show you the first time. Look over in Genesis. Everything for the first time is in Genesis, it seems. In fact, I want you to go almost all the way back to the beginning and draw your eyes down to Genesis chapter 12. This is from, at least my study, the first time that a Jew would interact with a Pharaoh of Egypt. I don't mean to give away my points, but it doesn't go well. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Here, in Genesis chapter 12, as with in Genesis chapter 42, the narratives are quite familiar. There is, in Genesis chapter 12, if I stop talking, I'll get there quicker. Notice, if you will, in, uh, in verse 10. And there was a famine in the land. Do you remember from a couple weeks ago what set Egypt aside from so many of the other kingdoms? The Nile Delta. Desert on either side of the Nile. Some distance away, but desert on the other side. But as it leaves from the, the, the plats and the mountains of what we would consider the area of Sudan, and it doesn't really flow north when it flows southward. 
there's the whole equator thing there. It empties into the Mediterranean and it creates that Nile Delta that is extremely rich in nutrients. And as that water comes and the Nile will go through something of a wet season, it will flood and the area on either side of the Nile is incredibly fertile. And then when it goes into the Delta area, of which the one side is called Goshen, just before it empties into that area, that is incredibly fertile. They had grain, and all of the other arid places around them had famine. Sounds a whole lot like Joseph and Jacob, but it's not. Look in the text. There was famine in the land, and Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there. Why? The famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass. It's an interesting expression. When he, that is Abraham, was come near to e enter into Egypt, he said unto Sarai, his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they will say, This is his wife. They will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well for me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abraham was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. And the princes also of whom? Pharaoh. Saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abraham well for her sake. He had sheep and oxen and he asses, and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. Note verse 17. What's it say? And the Lord did what? Isn't that a coinky dink? Isn't that interesting? More than 200 years before Moses was ever born, God sent the first plague. Isn't that interesting? You see, the Pharaoh of Moses' time, one of the reasons his heart was hard and he was perniciously obstinate towards God is because he would not look back upon the annals of Egyptian history. When in rode this one man, the father of a nation, but he was the only one of two of that nation, and they coveted after his wife, much to the consternation of a holy God that that was offensive to. And though Abraham did and left himself to carnal methods, God honored his friend and did not forget him because he had abided by his own covenant. And God plagued Pharaoh. Why? Because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And this fellow here, Pharaoh, is not stubborn. He called Abram. And he said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me she was thy wife? Now, maybe the scripture just doesn't touch on it here. But it didn't take a whole lot of prudence for this fellow to figure that out, did it? Why saidest thou she is my sister, so I might have taken her to me to wife? Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go away. And the Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Amazing. You know, if the Pharaoh of Exodus chapter 4 would have only consulted with the annals of Egyptian history, he would have come upon this written article, preserved in, my, it's preserved in the Bible, preserved in that time. Abraham was likely the only man on planet Earth that went riding into Egypt and the Pharaoh was not the supreme man there. When he did as he wanted to do, God protected this one-man country, as it were, and saved him alive and did so by plaguing Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, this Pharaoh, came to his senses and it repented him of his deeds. And God used this repentant Pharaoh in some regards to admonish Abraham for his lack of faith towards the Almighty God. Why was Pharaoh so obstinate? He refused to, to, to uh, uh, acknowledge God's plan. 
Genesis chapter 12, the Egyptians, the Pharaoh in particular, had been made fully known and aware of God's blessing to his people and of God's great protection. I've turned from my places. Look, if you will, in Genesis 14. Genesis 13, he's gone. He's one man. As far as descendants of, of Israel, he is one man. He is the father of Israel. There's something quite interesting. This one man and Sarah and his men servants will leave. In the next chapter, they leave in chapter 13, there's the division in chapter 13 between Lot and Abraham. Then you come to chapter 14. Lot goes to the vale of Sodom and Gomorrah and he lives there. And in chapter 14, you have all these names that sound so unimportant to the narrative of scriptures, but they are exquisitely important. It's the battle of the five kings. And these city-states would gang up and they would conquer Sodom and Gomorrah and take captive all of its inhabitants, including one, Lot. So if you drop your eyes down to verse number 14. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive... There's no direct descendants of Abraham alive at this time. He's one man. And only the substance of that one man. But Pharaoh was deathly afraid, who commanded a mighty empire, was deathly afraid of this one man's God. And keep this in mind. The Egyptians are keenly aware of all the other city-states and inner movements that occur. They have to protect Goshen. They have to protect their land. Note this. Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive. He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them even unto Dan, which is the north part, I believe, of Israel. And you read down through here, he divides himself tactically, you know. They bring back all the goods. He brought back again his brother Lot with his goods and all the women also and the people. And the king of Sodom went out after his return of the slaughter and begins to thank him and bless him, etc. Let me ask you a question. Do you think this ancient unnamed Pharaoh was unaware of the divine protection of Abraham? He's not a king. He has no court. He lives in a tent. He's a herdsman. But if you touch his wife, God will plague you. If you set your face against Abraham, five kings could not do it. You want to submit to me that Pharaoh had no clue who the Jews were? Human interaction, he did. If we were to take time and we go over to the 40 and 42nd chapters of Genesis, you'll find a second interaction, and that's Abraham's great-grandson Joseph. It becomes the vizier of Egypt. God's abundance is shown forth. He, that is Pharaoh, once, once uh, Jacob and his descendants, they come, there's only 66 of them. When they come into the land of Goshen, only 66 of them. But when you contrast that with Exodus chapter 1, you'll find they're now a mighty people. And we want to suppose that this Pharaoh here in Exodus was unaware of these facts. I submit to you, not only was he aware of them, he simply just completely disregarded God's sovereign protective hand and therefore disregarded God altogether. Let me give you a second thing, speaking of disregarding God. Why did he harden his heart? Why did God send the plagues? Because Pharaoh refused to honor God in the very slightest detail. Look in chapter 3, and I've not made much of this, but look in verse 18. Of chapter 3. This was the initial request. And they shall hearken to thy voice. And thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, and ye shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord God. The initial request was what? Just three days' journey. And what was Pharaoh's response going to be? You can almost hear it as a braggadocious... Say what? His answer is really given in chapter 5. Listen to this. 
And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. This is that three-day journey. This is what he's talking about. Three days, that's what we're talking about. We're going to go three days in the journey, have a feast, and then we got three days back. And Pharaoh said, listen to Pharaoh's godless, obstinate, hardening, rebellious answer. Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice to let Israel go? (laughs) You can almost see the smugness. Note this. I know not the Lord. I know not. It's interesting, isn't it? This is a king that's familiar with every God that humanity and their mind has ever reconciled to. We related to you last week, ten plagues, ten gods or more. And you don't know the Lord? To reacquaint you, that was the God of Joseph. That was the God of Jacob. That was the God of Abraham, who interacted many administrations ago and plagued you. The Lord that plagued Pharaoh from Abram is the same God we wish to worship. Mockingly derisive. Who is the Lord? No honor, even in the slightest. Truly the scripture says, Honor the Lord with the substance of thy first fruit. Why? That it might be a help to thy navel and a merit to thy bone. He chose to have absolutely no honor in the slightest towards God or his people, (coughs) and rather found himself a desire to worship the gods of his own imagination. No acknowledgement of God's plan, and no honor to God. Let me give you a third one. Pharaoh refused to acknowledge God's divine supremacy. Now, we related this to you several times, but... Each of these plagues was a direct assault against various gods. Be that the god of the flies, Hathor, be that the god of the Nile, Osiris, who they would claim that the very blood of Osiris was, in fact, the Nile River. The god Happy, who was the god of fertility. Uh, Be that the god Sekhmed, uh, or Set, as also known, the god of storms. Or be that Sirius, the god that protected them from locusts. Or Serapa, the god that in fact was the protector of the crops. Or be that god Ra, who was the god of all sun. Or even the god of fertility, Hegat, who was the one that was to protect all of the children of Israel. All of these, he chose rather to completely ignore the Most High God, the King of Heaven. He has no supremacy in this place. A fourth one, and I must hurry. He embraced all manner of pride and stubbornness. We see this in chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2. I don't know who God is. I don't know who He is. I need not do it. Proverbs 16, pride goeth before. That's not just applicable for Pharaoh. It's applicable for all people at all times number of things you could say about pride in scriptures. The sixth chapter of Proverbs, the scripture admonishes these 16 does the Lord hate. Yea, seven abomination to him, and the first of those is proud heart, proud look. God has a particular disdain for those sins, pride and stubbornness. Proverbs chapter 11, when pride cometh, then cometh shame. James chapter 4 and verse 6, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud. Do you remember the word picture when we're studying in James? It means to come out in full battle ray. If you really want God to drop the proverbial hammer, embrace a life of pride. If you want God to cut short his long suffering with you, Flaunt your prideful sin in front of him and see if that doesn't forthwith gain his glorious attention. Yet coupled with that pride was stubbornness. In Exodus chapter 12, in those verses there, I think it's verse 29 and 30, as that firstborn at midnight was to come across 
Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all of Egypt, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. That's what his pride and stubbornness cost him. And how true that is on the heart of anyone that hardens their heart against God. It's going to be painful for those upon who you have influence in this life. The 29th chapter of Proverbs, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. The fifth thing about the hardening heart of Pharaoh is this. Pharaoh's hardness brought about a need of justice. He had a constant behavior that needed correcting. I think of a number of things that precipitating this particular passage in chapter 12 you can think of. He was a malicious idol worshiper. He set his face. Remember the commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You think of Pharaoh, he was an unjust man. In Exodus, he calls to them that they would make brick in the most excruciating way and then doubled their load. He was an unjust man. He was a truce breaker. That's just a nice way of saying he was a born liar. Just as soon as there would be some plague upon him, the scripture I think says in the 8th chapter, maybe the 15th verse of chapter 8, he says, and when he had respite, when he had a little respite, he changed his mind. You couldn't trust him. Boy, that's the ultimate of what a believer should be, where your yeas are yeas and your nays are nays. This man would break his word over and again. No commitment in anything he said. No commitment in his agreement and no commitment in his contracts that he's made. He's another sin. He has an unrepentant heart. I'm not changing. Listen to the writing that Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set them to do evil. He looked at the long-suffering of God and completely disregarded it. You remember the psalm this morning? At time, God kept silent. And then at the end, what's He going to do? He's going to speak and the world will hear Him. Pharaoh misinterpreted the patience and long-suffering of God and not realizing that because God had withstood His hand of judgment in some matter against Pharaoh, Pharaoh sowed and sowed unto more evil. Mark this. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, pride, obstinate, stiff-neckedness, unyieldingness, rebellion. Note this, whatsoever man soweth, And just because God didn't bring judgment on day one or day two or day three, don't misunderstand that as a singular fact that he by human measures may have forgotten. It's rather a space of repentance. There's a number of things to say there. A sixth one that I would submit to you this. Pharaoh's heart as it continued to judge and the plagues came and ultimately his utter demise was brought about because of his personal temptation to the righteous. I quoted Proverbs chapter 6 to you a moment ago. Let me turn there for a moment. Listen to these words. Well, I know it's Proverbs chapter 6. Here we go. 16 is the Lord hate, yea, 7 are abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue. Hands, chapter 6 and verse 17, that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. Listen to this. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. A false witness that speaketh lies. Sounds like Pharaoh, doesn't it? And he that soweth discord among the brethren. I want to hone in for that last one which actually, if in chronological 7, that's an abomination, that might be the one the Lord hates the most, the sowing of discord among the brethren. You know, that's exactly what Pharaoh did. He might have been a master at divide and conquer. He couldn't beat Jehovah. 
oh, his sorcerers with their wickedness could replicate a semblance of God's power. But then after that third plague, they weren't able to do it. And his sorcerers were discomforted by some of the judgments of God. See, you know what he began doing? He played the role of the devil. If you can't beat them, get them to hate each other. Here's the key. You know what he did? Systematically, he began to tempt the righteous. In Exodus chapter 8 and verse 25, go sacrifice in the land and then come back. By this time, God's command was, let my people go. And Pharaoh's counter was, well, just go into the land and then come back. He offered them liberty to sacrifice to God as long as they stayed in his land and under his rule. You know, like often today, Christians don't cast off completely the yoke of darkness. Just go halfway. That's what he tried to do. When that failed, a few verses later, he said, go and offer sacrifice, but don't go very far away. Don't go beyond the boundary of my kingdom. I'll let you go, but don't go too far. And then moving from Exodus chapter 8, you go to Exodus chapter 10. He said, listen, here's an idea. If you're going to go beyond my boundaries, I'll give you a third compromise. Leave all the children and the women. Just you men go. That's Exodus chapter 10 and verse 11. Don't have complete and utter separation. And then finally later in chapter 10, he said, well, you're going to go and your whole family's going to go, but how about this? Leave all your flocks. Leave your sustenance here. We don't make much of those, but that's quite interesting. You know what he was doing? He was tempting the righteous. They're being persecuted. Their flesh is no stronger than my flesh. And Moses let my people go. And then he'd have to go back and listen to all the, the, the Israelites who have been under slavery and bondage and, and near infanticide. And not every child was spared quite to the extent of the way Moses was spared. And not everyone was in the lap of luxury quite like Moses was. And not everyone during the last 40 years had been in the land of Media. And it sowed into them an attitude of pernicious mumbling and complaining. This is Pharaoh's parting gift to the children of Israel. And no doubt when the elders of Israel gathered together, well, uh, Moses, this is a good offer. Moses, this isn't a bad deal. There's some good things about how we... Moses, it doesn't have to be absolute. It's a little bit. I know it's not everything you wanted, Moses. But Moses, it's a good start. No wonder the first thing they do when they leave Egypt is complain. Now, there may have been a genetic disposition for that, but Pharaoh capitalized on it. And remember that thing God said he hate? So with what? Discord. That's exactly what Satan does. In some ways, you could say the Pharaoh here is in line with the false prophets that were in Jude's day. You remember the unholy trinity that he gives you? He talks about Balaam and Korah, etc. Now, Balaam's an interesting test. He was called by Balak to curse Israel. And when he couldn't curse Israel, what was the plot and plan? He said, I know what we can do. Historically, it's proven to be true, Balak. I can't curse him. I can't curse him. We've tried, but God only blesses them the more. So you know what? If we get them to violate God's command, Guess what God will do? Now, I don't know that Pharaoh had that kind of insight, but he knew exactly how to turn the boat over. You know, I, I'm, there's some Christians get hard hearts and are infectious in their bitterness and obstinate towards the things that God does. There are sometimes believers that would go a long way if they'd separate from some people that have pernicious tongues and constantly sowing discord. Be a little Pharaoh's. Allowing that God hates it. He hates it in our life. He hated it in Pharaoh's life as well. A final thought about this is this. God used Pharaoh's hardness of his heart as an example to all. Let me have you turn to one last passage. Look in Nehemiah, if you will.
I know Nehemiah is in a passage that you might readily think of in context with the Exodus account. It's been a long time. The children of Israel, now having finished up their 70 years in the diaspora, are now returning. Rebuilding walls in Nehemiah's time, and later in Ezra's time, they're rebuilding the temple. And there's still people there, but it's not the same as it used to be. And generations have forgotten now. There's been no temple. There's been no place of instruction. The vast host of those entrusted to the teaching and the preservation have been in Babylon. The prophets have been in exile. It's desolate and foreign kings have come in and people have intermarried with heathens and their children have been raised and they have forgotten. And so Nehemiah and Ezra both are rekindling a remembrance and reminding these new ones, if I can put it in that essence, of the great works of God in the past. And that's what you get when Ezra stands on the wooden pulpit and reads the book of the law. He's reminding them of their history. He's making them aware of God's plan. Nehemiah here, listen to this, in something similar, the 10th verse. Actually, back it up the 9th verse. This is a small phrase. He said, And didst see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, speaking of God, and heardest their cry by the Red Sea, and showest signs and wonders upon Pharaoh. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 10. And on all his servants, and on all the people of the land, for thou knewest that thou dealt proudly against them. Speaking of Pharaoh, so didst thou get thee a name as it is in this day. Go back to Romans chapter 9 in your mind. He raised Pharaoh up. God allowed Pharaoh to exist. God gave Pharaoh many chances to repent. But God's glory was made manifest when he broke proud Pharaoh. And it's a lesson for all people, then and now. And the sad thing is, sometimes the greatest lesson that you learn from some people in life is what not to do. And Pharaoh would be in that camp. In fact, I would submit to you that though Pharaoh was rebellious and stiff-necked, a breaker of promises, a liar, an abuser of mankind, murderous in his heart, stubborn in his action. God saved people because of Pharaoh's doom. Now I'm not just getting you to jump to that. I'm telling you this, that when God crushed Pharaoh, there were other people that saw the work of God because of God's glory and that magnanimous defeat of Pharaoh and trusted in him. That's not theoretical. That's literal. One more passage. Look in Joshua. You see, though it wasn't a 40-year trek from Goshen to Canaan, it would take them a little more than 40 years because God had to purge out some leaven. There was a generation that had learned how to deal like Pharaoh dealt. dealt. Complainers, pagan worshipers, discord sowers, liars, proud, haughty, and God had to deal with them as well. Forty-some years later, in chapter 5 of Joshua, following the priest in the ark, the children of Israel would cross over Jordan at flood stage and would face against the citadel of the Jordan, Jericho. Prior to that event in Joshua chapter 2, there were some spies sent in to spy out Jericho, do you remember? And they nearly get captured by the king. And pre-adventure, as it were, they went into the home of a woman and she hid them upon the roof of her house. Verse number 6. In the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof, 
as the king's men pursued after them the way to Jordan to the fords. And as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gates. And before they were laid down, she came up unto the roof, and she said unto the men, I know, she's speaking to these spies, I know, 42 years or so have passed. I know that the Lord hath given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us. And all the inhabitants of the land faint before you. Malachites, giant people are there. The Philistines, giant people are there. Many city-states and armies are present. She's more confident than Joshua in one sense. Really, beginning of chapter 5, he's trembling before this angel of the Lord. You force her against us. In Joshua chapter 1, be strong and of good courage. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. And this old gal's in the city street saying, I know God's given us over and everybody's scared to death of you. What would have happened? What event would have shaken their souls? Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. What he did to the king, two kings of the Amorites on the side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. You know who perished in the Red Sea? Hard-hearted Pharaoh. Who by his own foolishness and reprobate mindset was destroyed by God. But his doom and destruction was a glimpse into the mercy of an almighty God for old Rahab, who, if memory will serve us correct, was in the very lineage of our Lord. Pharaoh, in many ways, is a representative of stubborn, prideful, rebellious evil that attempts with the great evil, Satan, to undermine the will of God for saints. He will use any means necessary to accomplish this mission. His heart was hardened by his blatant refusal to submit to God, the God that he had rejected. His desire was to subvert all others from serving this God as well. Pharaoh's hard heart, a lesson to all that will listen. Let's stand where feet. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.